Pete Giuliano, it is Saturday, the 29th of July, 2017, and that makes this solder smoke, what's the number, Pete? 198. 198, excellent. Okay, we got a lot of stuff to cover. It's been a while. We were, we're delayed. It's summertime. Other things come up, including a bit of travelogue for me, a trip down to Charleston, South Carolina. Went down there. Uh, for a number of different reasons, but we had a we had a real good family trip down there at Charleston. And the only thing of radio note that I want to mention is that I saw a sign on one of these kind of beach restaurants, these beachy restaurants that they have, and it, it had a word there that I thought might deserve a place in the solder smoke lexicon. Shactacular. <laughs> Man, you know what we're talking about. Some guys have radio stations that frankly are shacktacular so I, I don't know i think we'll have to consult with steve silverman on this one it might deserve a place in there we might have to wait until it comes into general usage we will throw it out for the uh, the brotherhood the international brotherhood of electronic wizards and if we start hearing or seeing increased use or or an, an, an adoption of the phrase then we will consider referring it to the uh, to the academy and see if they will include it in the in the dictionary in the lexicon of solder smoke oh yeah absolutely by, by the way my definition of shacktacular was the guy that had the 72 inch lcd display and this radio equipment was something today was sdr that was like the size of a book <laughs> so, so you had this book yeah well you see that's the problem i i don't know you see i well you know how i 72 inch display you know how i feel about that that's not spectacular <laughs> I, I i we have different views and see that's why we're gonna have to we have to we're gonna have to test drive this one we have to see if there's a, agreement in the uh in the brotherhood and sisterhood out there all right uh, I don't know. I'll just start out. I have a kind of a little anecdote here that might be of, of interest, especially to the uh, to the newer hams. The older hams might find it um, amusing. But I got on 40 the other day. I've been spending a lot of time on 40. And I get on 40, and everything seems to – I'm making a contact. I have a real nice contact. I'm getting into a long rag chew. But as I'm operating – I'm sure you do this too, Pete. Every once in a while, I, I reach up and check the, the temperature of the heat sink. How's it going? You know, how's it going? Is it normal? It's just a little check, you know, and uh, it's hotter than it normally is. I haven't changed anything in the shack. Nothing has changed. It's a little bit hotter than it normally is. But I'm watching the, the current being drawn into the amplifier. It's about normal, but it's still a bit hot, running hot, a little bit noticeably hotter. So I, um, but we, the, we conclude the QSO. He was fairly close, so it wasn't really a big, a big problem. Adjust the camera there a little bit. Um, but then I started thinking, something's different. All right, I throw this to you. What's different? What happened? You got a problem with your antenna. <laughs> yeah, it fell down. <laughs> yeah. It fell down. <laughs> Not completely, but it had fallen from uh, its normal dipole, nearly horizontal configuration, and it had suddenly become not an inverted V, but a V, <laughs> because one of the end supports had come down and it drooped significantly. And uh, I actually got an intermediate clue on this because I have a little antenna tuner in the in the line on the 40 meter antenna, and I just realized that I, I had to go over and peek it and tweak it a little bit to get it back down to a good match. But then I asked myself, why did I suddenly have to do that when I never had to right. do it before? And so I went down, and, and the antenna had, had fallen down a bit. Of course, it fell down on the day of 
maximum temperature and maximum humidity. So this is sort of the the July equivalent of your February antenna day. You see, you don't you don't have these yeah, situations yeah. there in Southern California. Hundred degrees. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you know, in the old days before <laughs> you didn't before, but now you do. Go ahead. Hey, hey, you know, that's a just to share with you what I do. I actually have two SWR bridges. And I have them in line, and I have one that goes between the transceiver and the amplifiers, and then I have another one that's on the output. And I look at those all the time. Yeah. And if I start to see something, because I have an antenna tuner on my 40 meter too, and, and there may be some slight changes, I'll tell you, like if it's damp or dew, you'll, you'll get just a slight uptick. But it's a really good idea if you get two SWR bridges. Look at that <laughs> you know, all the time. I, I built an antenna when we were in the Dominican Republic. I built a 20-meter uh, a dipole, and I had hung underneath it a 15-meter dipole on the same piece of coax. And I guess I was relatively new to home brewing, but I to come up with the spacers between the two antennas, I found some clothespins. So I'm like, yeah. well, yeah, but wooden clothespins. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I and I didn't paint them or anything. I just put them up there. And this is in the Dominican Republic where it rains a lot and they do have humidity. So short out. <laughs> it, it, well, not a short, but but almost kind of like a weather indicator. Yeah. I, I could tell when it was raining outside or when the humidity was yeah. was up close to a hundred percent because the SWR would start to tick up. But uh, anyway, I, I have pulled the antenna back up sort of to where it belongs, and I've. Uh, Discovered that my backyard, for dipoles anyway, it's about 40 meters maximum in the backyard. I mean, I could go probably go to 80 meters if I included the front yard, but that would mess up Elisa's garden, and I don't want to do that. So uh, I got to start thinking what I'm going to do antenna-wise. Uh, maybe I'll wait till February. Wait till what's the magic day? 17th. The 17th of February. February 17th. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll pencil it in. Real good. Um, Anyway, the EB63A amplifier survived, so I didn't have to buy more of those 454 transistors that, that you became so familiar you know with. You know why it survived? What is that? You, put the feedback, you got the feedback in there. Got the feedback, the modification. Save the day. Yes. All right. Save the day. Yeah. Thank you, Allison. She's listening yeah. out there. Thank you, Allison. Yeah. Yes. Um, hey, but uh, I, I, uh, talking about um, kind of on-the-air operations, I, I want to mention something here in the beginning. Um, this is not sort of on the bench. This is sort of like on the operating table. My fishy rig, the fish rig. I talked about this briefly. You know, after that whole, you know, elevation into the, you know, the QRP, ARCI, Hall of Fame, made man kind of thing, I, I, I felt an obligation to do something QRP-ish and CW-ish, you know? And I started looking around. I started thinking, man, I'm building all these amplifiers. You know, I'm on phone all the time. The telegraph keys gathering dust over there in the corner. I felt compelled. You know what I mean? It's like a moral thing. I have moral obligation. So I reached around and I said, well, wait a second. I got the Tuna Tin 2 that I built a while back. I got the Herring Aid 5, the receiver that I rebuilt after failing 38 years prior. Got that one going. Farhan gave me this beautiful key from India when he visited. So it was like the radio gods have spoken. They wanted me to put a QRPP rig on the air. I got a piece of plywood, I guess about, I guess, I don't know, about maybe 16 inches wide, maybe six or eight inches deep. 
and I just started screwing and gluing <laughs> the, the Herring 8.5, the Tunitin 2, and the key on the one big, big board. I found a little piezo buzzer to serve as the side tone oscillator. I hooked that thing up, and Robert is your mother's brother. Mother's brother. Bob's yeah. your uncle. The thing's on yeah. the air. 250 milliwatts, crystal controlled. Let me tell you, not for the faint of heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. The contact's got to be down the street, right? Well, <laughs> He's got to have a 40 no, meter beat. No, yeah. the thing is, it's not like the old days. Where people would tune up and down the band to see if oh, anybody yeah. was responding. If you're not bang on, man, in that, you know, 1,000 MP, you know, very narrow pass band, they're not coming back to you. But I had this thing on the air, and I had fun with it. I'm, I'm not, I'm like you, I've kind of drifted away from CW quite a bit. And um, I don't really have a great antenna, and I've, you know, I, I don't know. But I got it on the air, and I had it on, and I used it for about, Seven days straight, and here's the amazing thing: I mean, it's only it was only putting about out about a half a watt to the dipole on 40 meters, crystal controlled. But I made a contact every single day with that thing. Every day I had it on. I mean, it took a while. It wasn't easy. There was a lot of kind of hoping. A lot of most of the contacts were me calling CQ, which is fun. I used the reverse beacon network, so I could tell when I was getting out because they they just pick up and record automatically your CQs. So that was fun, but Hey, a bunch of contacts were made. It was QRPP, extra P in there, because it was really low power, and CW. So I, th I think I'm good for a while with the QRP authorities. Check the, check the block. <clears throat> check the, check block. the block. All right. So there, there we go. Hey, I want to just um, share something with uh, our podcast listeners. <clears throat> we, I'm always on the lookout for things that could be used in our hobby that, that are found in unusual places. And uh, my XYL has taken an art class. Well, she's been in this class for several years now. It meets once a week and uh, usually involves she runs out of uh, canvas material or paints. And so I have, to, uh, I have to go in the stores and find it for her. And I discovered a source for really neat plywood in small pieces, finished pieces, Joanne Fabrics. If you can, have, if you can find a Joanne Fabrics store somewhere near you, they got this whole rack of these finished pieces of plywood, various thicknesses, small sizes, perfect for breadboards. And I went by that and I said, oh, man, I could build a breadboard tube type CW transmitter on one of those pieces of boards. I mean, it just, you could, you know, you could envision it with fun stock clips and, you know. Open oh, cord man. There's Joanne, something. Joanne some, Fabrics. There's something alluring about a piece of of solid wood of breadboard size yeah you know yeah. we are we are definitely on the same frequency pete because just two days ago i was in the supermarket with elisa and going down the aisle and we got to the part where they sell you know knives and you know spatulas and all that kind of stuff and there was the the breadboard I got it. It's sitting back over there, man. <laughs> there you go. It's ready to go. See, see if there's a Joanne Fabrics in, in your neighborhood, and it's worth going in there because that they also have a really good source of X-Acto knives at not X-Acto knife prices. <laughs> yeah, I know. And and you know, all these kind of hobby and craft stores, there's a lot of opportunity yeah. in there. I mean, I got the boxes for the, the Bidex transceivers from Michael's Craft yeah, Store. I don't know yeah. if they have them out, out there in California. Yeah, yeah they do. But yeah. there's a, you know, the, there is a, there are there is good stuff. Homebrew stuff to be found in these stores. So Joanne Fabrics will add that to the uh, 
Yeah. yeah. Listen, and plus, you 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 could appear, you know, to be supportive of your your spouse or significant other who may yeah. have an interest in yeah. that area. Yeah. There yeah, you go. I, I, as a side note, it's a great place to pick up women. Here I am in line. <laughs> Here I am in line. Did you have your beret on? <laughs> no, no. Here I am in line, and there's all these women, and I have this pack of canvases. So this rather attractive woman says what are you painting i said nothing and she looked at me you know like what, what are you doing in line here but i said man you better stay out of that store Mr. Yeah, stay out of this you store, stay out of that store especially with the beret man no right, you'll right, be you'll right, be in right. trouble with a capital right. t uh-uh right. all right um let's see what else oh i wanted to share i wanted to talk a little bit about um did you got any on the air activities to report first before we, i because I, I talked about my qrp daring do well I've, I've been on the air a lot but it's it's all been on sideband no it's, that's that counts that counts yeah yeah, yeah. Not, i don't want to i don't want to put any kind of cw qrp pressure on you mr hall of fame member i i even actually have three cw transceivers real ones all homebrew there you go all built by me yeah absolutely. there you go so, if I, so I don't let anybody do talk we don't want to hear it there you go yeah, all right there you yeah. go okay all right take care of that all right, now that's <laughs> at that point. I want to switch to a discussion of microphones. <laughs> there you go. Here we go. We, how how quickly we fall into our old habits. Um, the D one hundred and four. I have had some adventures with the D one hundred and four in in recent weeks. I have one D one hundred and four here that I've had. I guess since I it must be since like the early nineties. I think I picked it up. When Estatic was still in business, I think they were still in operation, and I got it from them, and it has worked like a charm ever since. It's it's my favorite mic, no matter what I use, and I, when I go back to the D104, everybody says it sounds better. So I've used it with all kinds of rigs, and I've used it with the Bidex, and you know I, I, I have a need for like another microphone around the shack. So I went out on eBay a couple weeks ago looking for D104s, and I found one. They're not cheap. You know, they, they're, they're hard to come by, but there was one there, and I threw in a bid on it. Okay, I got it. I got it for about 30 bucks, and it came. Yeah. The guy warned me. The guy warned me. He said, you know, I'm not getting any output from it, but you don't know what that means. That might be, mean that he didn't has, doesn't have a battery in the base or something. So I figured I'd take a chance. What the heck? Well, it came, and I checked it out. The amplifier in the base was fine. I put a new battery in there, but he was right, no output. And then I, I took off the head and I looked inside at the element. The element was just trashed. I mean, it was it was really broken up. But this is the first time I ever looked inside an element of a D104. I mean, I had this vision of tightly packed Rochelle salt crystals in there, absorbing my audio, you know, waves as they impacted on the crystals and converting them into electric energy. It's not quite like that. No, it's uh, it's a it's amazingly flimsy. They have this little tiny wafer, kind of like a like a thin chiclet in there. It's kind of glued, kind of in a kind of kind of a jerry rigged way onto this kind of plastic bakelite base. And then they've got this weird looking what they call a stirrup thing. It looks like a like a cowboy's stirrup on top of it, and that just goes up to this kind of cone of aluminum. Aluminum disc, yeah, aluminum yeah, disc. and and that's it. And I mean, I, I was surprised at how, how fragile the whole thing looks. And this may account for how many D104s are out there with bad crystal elements. I mean, sometimes they'll attribute it to humidity, things like that. I think it's just if these things fall over and take a shot, 
that stirrup's coming loose and, and the show's over. I suppose really skilled guys with mechanical skills and good dexterity could conceivably repair one of these things, but I realized, no, I'm not going to be able to do that. So anyway, um, Steve Silverman has found a dynamic uh, element replacement for the D104. He's going to send that to me. Thanks very much, Steve. Um, if you go out onto the Internet, you know, there was a time when you could get crystal mic replacements. There were a number of different companies out there. Yeah. I'm sorry to report that they're all gone. You know, guys are going to write back and say, well, why don't you get this one? Why don't you get that one? Well, if you try, and I've tried, I haven't found anybody who's selling, you know, crystal or ceramic uh, element replacements for the D104. So, anyway, but I, I, I wanted to share with you guys, I've been reading Electric Radio. You know, Armand, our friend WA1UQO, has sent me a whole stack of Electric Radio magazines. And I love this magazine. It's an excellent resource for uh, electronics and for the history of radio. And I found, as I was perusing them, in the um, uh, an ominous date, the September 2001 issue, um, there's an article in here by a guy I knew. He was a regular at the ham fests in this area. A great guy. He's since become a silent key. He uh, departed far too young, but a great guy. And many of you will, will, will know the name, Bill Brashears, WC3K. Bill was a real boat anchor guy, and he was a real character. He would wear this kind of top hat, kind of a magician's hat at the ham fest. Very friendly, very helpful, and he wrote a bunch of great articles for Electric Radio. So his, uh, his legacy lives on, his knowledge is still with us. And he describes, I'll just read something, a few things from an article that he wrote in the September 2001 number issue of Electric Radio number 148. Uh, my first encounter with the Aesthetic D104 microphone dates from the late 1940s, before I was licensed, when I became fascinated with ham radio. My Elmer would control his big open rack blank, black wrinkle finished rig with a chrome wire mesh protected as if a caged beast were inside. Oh. I never thought of it that way, but he's right. Yeah. Caged beast was inside. That's why you need that wire mesh. D104. When he pressed that push-to-talk bar, huge oversized contacts, used oversized contactors and antenna transfer relays would energize with a loud kerchunk, causing meters, blue rectifiers, and red plates to come alive. Awesome. I wanted to do that. I suppose it was love at first sight for ham radio as well as D-104s. You know, I people, prominent amateur radio operators in the CW community have cast aspersions on the D-104, Pete. In messages to me, they said, why do you have that CB thing in your shack? Ha! They don't know. They, they don't, don't know. know. They don't know. All right, uh, Bill goes on here. The Ostatic D104 microphone remains one of my favorites, and it is the microphone of choice for many AM boat anchors operators. Besides being a good performer, this is important, it has a significant mystique associated with its looks. It projects a very manly image and feels solid of heft and fits in the hand as a fine target pistol would. 
unlike those wimpy little flexible shaft Q-tip things or liver-colored transceiver squeeze mics that make you look like you are covering a sneeze. <laughs> okay, great. I won't comment on those ice cream cone karaoke things, but Elvis wouldn't have used one. Oh, man, this guy's got a way with words. The old military T-17 carbon mic is a close second favorite for me, but that is another story. Anyway, there you go. Look at that, man. Yeah. Go ahead. You're going to say something? I I was going to say there's a movie made in about 1935 with Cary Grant and Thomas Mitchell. And this is a story where they were flying these airplanes over South America. And the way that they used to keep in contact with these uh, airplanes is that they'd have these way stations. And they'd contact the way station because in 1935, the communications network wasn't very sophisticated worldwide. And they'd sit there with a D-104 <laughs> calling. Uh, calling. <laughs> you could see him with a D-104 in it. Yeah, just like that. Look, calling the airplane. Yeah. I bet you they had it sitting. Now, the thing about the D-104 is, yeah. and I don't think it was intentionally designed this way, but Pete can see me on the screen here, but yeah. when, you, when you use the D-104, I think almost all of us kind of lean back in the chair, yep. and you place the edge of the base right when about the solar plexus, yeah. and it helps you maintain the proper distance for modulation, see? Yes. Um, yes. But I, yes. I read in another electric radio article, this really cracked me up, this guy, he loved the D-104, but he didn't like the base. The base is called a tug eight or a tug nine. The G yeah. stands for grip. That's the grip switch, yep. right? Yep. And but they they have this stand, and he claims that that from using the D one o four so much, it actually resulted kind of in a spot <laughs> on on his solar plexus, like an indentation, which he refers to as the G spot. Yeah, there you go. Hey, put put that mic back up. I want to take a picture here and no, how you had it, how you had it on your chest. And the reason is, this is a you first. Got two, you got two microphones. I know. <laughs> you got you got you got the the homebrew mic. <laughs> the homebrew got- solder smoke mic. Yeah. All right. Well, the homebrew solder smoke mic. Well, anyway, we're going to thank Bill Brashears. We're going to be reading more from him. You know. You know. You know. R.I.P. Like to- but uh, man, what, what a great like article. To- yeah. What I'd like to find is the head, the different head. They got the, uh, the, the the lollipop style, and then they had the 10D4. Yeah. I wish I could find one of those. Is those the ones with the springs, or no? No, 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 no. This is this looks like a like. Oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. 10D4 yep. head fit on there. Yeah. By the way, Static was a really amazing company. Um, maybe about 12, 13 years ago, when they were still in business, my the grip to talk mechanism, it's kind of a unique casting. When you go grip the talk that's inside there, there's a little micro switch that it activates. That that broke on me, so I contacted them, and the guy says, "Hmm." He said, "Man, we don't sell those things." He said, "You know, maybe I can find one somewhere in somebody's desk drawer. Give me your name and address." Three days later, I had one in my hand. I mean, this is something about company and customer service i mean the guy didn't have to do that He'd in new york right city too you know there, there's so much radio history in new york city these guys were yeah. making these things in new york you know there was a lot of stuff there in the big apple and so that, that's great but anyway the uh, to get back to my story and this this relates to this new goofy uh solder smoke microphone that i'm using uh i started looking around at how i was going to replace 
the the element in the D104 that I got off of eBay. And some people suggested trying to fix the stirrup thing in the old one. And I said, no, no, I'm not going to do that. And then there were all kinds of other suggestions. But then I noticed in Bill Brashear's article, and Bill is an actual authority on the D104. He talks about how you might repair them. And later on, then, then he goes through all the stuff that you could do to try to repair them. But then he says, or you could replace it with one of those little cheapo electrets and it'll probably work fine. Now this, I mean, I think a lot of people will find this surprising because there's this image of the D104 element as having some sort of magical properties, you know, especially among the AM crew. The idea is that you just take the D104 and you hook it up directly to the input of your DX100 and your tones become more melodious almost instantly. Well, really, when you think about it, there's nothing magical about the D104. It's, it's a transducer. And it's got a response curve that's a little bit different because if you look at the curve, it's got a peak up at the high frequencies. Right. But if you look at the response curve of the $2 electret element, it's about the same without that little peak, but it's pretty flat across the audio spectrum. So I went in and did what was what many people have suggested, and I put a cheapo uh, electret element inside the, the D104. You know, I run... I ran another little wire up from the base to put some voltage on it because there's an actually an FET amplifier inside there that needs at least, I think, like five or six volts or up to right. nine volts in there. So I just ran from the, the juice from the amplifier up into that thing. So I have a little resistor, a little dropping resistor in there, and I run it all back down to the amplifier that they have in the base. So now I have my original D104, and I have this new Electret D104, and I want to do kind of a quick and dirty test of the audio response so what i do is i get a speaker and i get my audio signal generator i get a speaker and i situate the two do104s so they're equidistant from the speaker and then i i adjust the amplifiers in the bass so they're 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 about the same level and i put on one channel of the oscilloscope one um microphone and the other one on the other channel i fire up the rigol and I just sweep through the audio spectrum, recording every 100 hertz or so the output from the D104. And what I find is, as predicted by the charts, remarkably similar. I mean, with a, the difference that there's a bit more of the highs on the D104. So then I take them on the air, and I get into conversations on 40, and I ask guys, okay, I'm going to switch mics. Which one do you like best? I must say... Guys generally seem to like the original D104 a little bit better, even when they don't know which is which. But it's not like, but but if I force people and say, okay, do they really sound much different? They'll both, they'll almost always say, nah, it sounds about the same. So there is hope. I mean, you, you get to maintain that manly <laughs> heft that that the Bill Brashears talked about. The it's in, the electret is now caged in there like the caged beast, and this brings up. I mean, he was joking about the caged beats, but I think this does point to one of the big advantages of doing this with a, with a D104 um, kind of frame and head. There's really good RF feedback protection there. That, that microphone element in there is, is very well shielded, right? And that is one of the problems I note with Electrets, that if you have them sort of just out there floating around, you know, I've had it where they're, they're picking up RF, right? And this thing, it's it's surrounded by this this metal case, this cage, including the mesh in the front, all of which is grounded. So it's 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 really good shielding. 
But anyway, D104 replaced with an electret. I'm looking forward to Steve sending me the dynamic element. That'll give me a third, a third type of microphone to play with here with the, uh, the venerable D104. What cool. else? What else we got to talk about? Got anything cool. else? You got anything sort of similar or similar topic? Well, I've got four D104s. <laughs> Actually, All I got right. three mic stands and uh, four heads. And uh, one of them, uh, when I had the element go go out, I bought a Heil HC4, yeah. and that was that was kind of interesting. Is uh, that a dynamic element or or is it crystal? Or? It's crystal. Yeah, I don't think he's selling it anymore. Yeah, I don't so, think he is. I, so, I looked. On his site, the only thing he has as a replacement for the D104 these days is a dynamic element. Oh, I, I don't well, know. This, it's a, this HC was something. this the HC was goes into the, his high end microphone. It's just the element, and so you have to mount it to a piece of cardboard, like yeah. you have to, because it's really small, yeah. and um, you it's a low impedance mic, so you yeah. have a little bit of a problem because uh, if you try to rep, operate on two rigs, it doesn't it doesn't give enough output. So you, it's it's somewhat problematic to just take an HC4, HC5. I mean, if you put it into one of the solid-state rigs that have, uh, you know, front-end amplifiers, no problem. But you, it's really tough putting it into a tube rig like a, a TR4 or KWM2, something like that, because that's what I wanted to use it for. Well, I got, you know, somebody, uh, Valeri, KB2FIV, heard us talking about this on the last podcast, or he might have seen a, 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 a blog post about it. And he was kind enough to put into the mail a uh, a crystal microphone element that looks very much like the old D104s, but he told me he took it out of an old CB mic. But it has the same thing. It's circular. It's got a kind of aluminum thing in it. They got a little hole punched in it, which was important for the audio response. That's not a that's not a piece of damage. That was intentional. But you could tell that it's very similar to the D104 mic. But I hooked it up thinking that I would be able to use it directly into my DX100, um, but it's got much lower output than the, uh, the D1. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's an impedance thing because it, it's, it's, I think it's the same kind of element that is in the D104, and a lot of the AM gurus, yeah, including Tim, say that you should run the D104 crystal element directly into the audio input of the D of the DX100. I tried to do that with what Valeri sent me, but I found that the the audio output was significantly lower. So uh, he also sent me something cool, a little piezo buzzer. You know these buzzers that are just piezo buzzers? He said you could reverse them and use them as a mic. Pretty cool. Pretty cool idea. Well, you can also take uh, some of these headsets, not the earbud type, but the, the uh, headsets that got yeah. a dynamic in it. You can turn, you put a little transformer, get a Radio Shack transformer, turn that into a dynamic mic. I know. Done, done that. I have, I, have a, I have a Swan, a Swan microphone here. Look at this thing from the Swan. It's actually a Shure CM4. Very solid. You know, as I said, you know, very solid of heft, as Bill Brashears would say. But, um, it's got a dynamic element in there. It's in very good shape. This is from a Swan 240. This thing must be as old as I am. This thing's really old. Yeah, well, uh, that's vintage 1960. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you yeah, go. Yeah, there you go. That's so mine. By the way, I, I, you, you said something that Brashears mentioned about his Elmer. What he didn't fail to mention was that was a 100-watt transmitter that was in that rack of equipment. Yeah. <laughs> you know, 866As, and probably had a couple of tubes in there, 807s or maybe a 6146. It was a 100-watt rig and it weighed 200 pounds. That's right, yeah. But it was fun, man. It yeah, chunked. Yeah, it, yeah. it glowed. It, 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 it generated heat. Good stuff. 
All right, speaking of audio, I've got another audio problem, but this one on the receive side. This one I think is really interesting. There was a Sprat article by Dave, M0CEM, not long ago. Uh, and in the article, Dave made note of something that I had observed, but I had never really dug into. And that's about the Heathkit HW8. Here we go, QRP CW Classic Rig. The Heathkit HW8 QRP transceiver has on it a, an audio filter. And all the audio filter does is it narrows down the audio response of the audio amplifiers in the receiver. Um, and it has two positions, wide and narrow. I always operated it on wide because every time I tried to switch it to narrow, whatever I was listening to seemed to go way down in, in volume. It, and it just sounded weird. It didn't sound like I was narrowing the filter. It sounded like something else was going wrong. I thought maybe something was wrong with my HW8, but in Dave's article, I said I realized that he was observing the same thing on his. He dug into it and went in and looked at the the active filter, the RC filter using the op amp that precedes the audio board in the HW8. You know, you can tailor the as as you know well, Pete. You can tailor the the audio response based on the the resistor and capacitor values in the RC feedback filter, network yeah. right and, and you so you could set it up so that it has a cutoff at a certain frequency or it's a bandpass anyway what he discovered and this i found was really interesting he concluded that the heathkit engineers who had designed the hw8 had made an error and that there was no way that the in the narrow position that the center frequency would remain the same he concluded that when you threw that switch the center frequency would shift significantly by several hundred hertz, and that would account for the the the, uh, the diminishing of volume and the uh, and the and this difference in sound. You weren't you weren't on the peak. You were right, right. You're side. on the peak. You're off to the side. So you have the thing yeah. tuned in, and you try to narrow the filter, but now you, the filter has moved off to the side. So Dave, on his own, figured out what the correct value would be, and he prescribed an easy fix. And it was like, you know, solder across, I think, R24, a 130K resistor, and that will fix it in, because it's a British magazine, Bob will be your uncle. So I've been meaning to do this, and a couple weeks ago, I took the HW8 off the shelf, I popped it open, I found R24, I found the 130K transistor, zap, I put it in there. Man, it just, it fixed it. This thing has never worked better, and it really... It was interesting, I, and I, I started kind of poking around on the net about this. One of the questions I had was, why hadn't we heard about this before? Because the HW8 is one of the most, you know, scrutinized, modified, studied, beloved rigs in the whole QRP world. But we discovered, I discovered, that the only earlier reference to this problem and the only kind of guy who came up with a fix similar to this, and he did it completely independent, of Dave, because I don't think Dave saw his article, but in the May 1996 issue of 73 Magazine, George K8MKB had made the same discovery and, and provided the same, you know, solution. But uh, there you go. So this was this was great detective work on, on Dave's part, on George's part. And in trying to figure out how this happened, Somebody said that the Heath engineers may have been just starting with a kind of a, a larger, like, multi-op amp filter, and that they had just scaled it down quickly and figured, well, that would work, not realizing that when they, they had to change 
one of the resistor values. But uh, you don't find errors from those guys very often. But there it was. Pretty cool fix. Oh, yeah. Think? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. So that other thing works works a lot better. All right. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I've been doing some shack reorganization, Pete. I got um, some. I've got some additional test gear here. Steve Silverman gave me his HP 8640B signal generator, which I can you can tell, see over there. I, I can tell. I can see your bench. I can the see bench, your bench. Yeah. yeah that 80, cool. I, I I had worries about that 8640 because that thing is hefty, big, heavy. I thought it might knock the bench down, but I found a shelf that would support it, and I had to come up with a little. It, it kind of hung out over the edge of the shelf. And I put up a little support beam underneath it. So the 8640 is on the bench, and I have actually used it to uh, to, to repair a piece of gear. So thanks a lot to, to to Steve Silverman and to Dave up there in New York City who helped me get the thing. So Dave Bamford, thanks very much. Uh, that's that's great. I reorganized the, the operating table too. I put, I've got, you know, I'm sure you have the same problem. You got so many rigs. You got more rigs than you have space on the operating bench. So I've now got it. So I have the um, the HRO-ish receiver. I got the NE602 rig on top of that. I got the R2 phasing receiver. And I got my uh, BitX60 over there, too. So, anyway, a bit of a bit of shack reorganization. Pete, before we get into color and color schemes, you've got to remind me of something. Shameless Commerce Division. <laughs> there we go. You know, Bezos has been in the news. <clears throat> Have you seen this? He's the number one guy now. I, Which I, means I, that there's even more reason for you, the individual Solder Smoke listener, to use the Amazon block on the Solder Smoke blog because every time you use it to buy something, small or large, but preferably large, we take a little bit of money out of Mr. Bezos's pocket and we put it to work for the good of Solder Smoke and anything else we want to spend it on. <laughs> but software, software, microphones, microphones, or stuff to work how about, on. How about, how about the ladies in India? Ladies in India, all that kind of stuff. All these, all these things yeah. have to. They all cost money, and it's better if it's Bezos's money. So I, I urge you. I can't believe he's the number one guy, and his company's never made a profit. Well, I, I, I don't <laughs> don't taxes. don't blame it on us because we're no, not taking that no. much money from him, but. Anytime you want to buy something, go to the Solder Smoke blog. There's an Amazon block up there in the corner. Just type in whatever you're, you know, you're, you're looking to buy on Amazon. You know, Lamborghini, Maserati, or some super expensive a, piece I'm, of test. A McLaren. A McLaren, something like that. How much do they go for? Three hundred thousand. Wow. And I, I gotta tell you, I was in. The, That'd be fifteen grand for us, right there. Yeah, yeah. I, I I pulled into the bank the other day to get some some cash. And I spotted this orange car, and I never saw one like this before. And then I heard it go down the street, and there were a bunch of guys there talking. I said, what was that? He said, that was a $300,000 McLaren. They're wow. custom, custom made. And you can lease one for four grand a month. Yeah, well, we had we, in the neighborhood I used to live in in London, we had a Lamborghini and a Maserati dealership in the neighborhood. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and those those Lamborghinis in the window were like 325 pounds, 325K yeah. pounds. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Color. You mentioned orange. All right. This gets us to a topic, and this gets us to your workbench, Dr. Giuliano. <laughs> I, I, I have to alert our listeners to this. Some of I, I, this, they always, unlike on NPR, they give a warning. You know, some <laughs> listeners might find this news disturbing. So I'm going to say that now. Some of you who have become kind of happy about 
Giuliano Blue. Pete, he's, he's a guy who likes change. He's all about change. He's not static. Yes, he's, he's, yes. he's moving. Yes. And he's keeping up with the trends. He's in touch with the zeitgeist. And Giuliano Blue is being replaced, modified. We've got a new color scheme out there. Tell us about it, Pete. Well, it's all a result of, unfortunately, making a trip through Home Depot and looking for the sales. So I saw a sale on a can of yellow paint. So I said, <laughs> oh, man, yeah, yellow. So I noticed they also had some other colors on sale, cranberry. Ooh, cranberry is really nice. And hot pink, hot pink. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no. Hot pink, yeah. No. So I said, I, I got to try this. And actually, the, the yellow turned out quite nice, especially with a black case cover and a yellow front panel or black front panel and a yellow case color. Yeah, kind, kind of interesting. Well, you know, Steve Murphy has come up with the new names. If these colors are actually adopted over there yeah. at the Newberry Park Radio Laboratories, Steve Murphy wants to call the the first one you mentioned, Giuliello. Giuliello, yeah. And then the second, the black part, I guess, Julianics. Julianics, yes. So Giuliano, Giuliello and Julianics. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. I don't know, Pete. I've taken a look at a couple of these <laughs> things. And I, I, I'm I'm you know, I'm more of a stick in the mud than you are. I'm I'm going with the Giuliano blue. Well the, I don't think I'm, the world is ready for Giuliello. Okay, the the problem is I, I counted them up. I have fourteen Giuliano blue single side bed <laughs> transceivers. <laughs> fourteen of them. And so I yeah, said you, you might need to start color coding them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said we got to mix things up a little bit here and uh, and just uh, tr- try some color difference. But it was right. kind of fun. You know, I, the other thing I was thinking as I was writing now, Giuliolo and Giulianics. I mean, there's trademark potential here. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I think. I mean, you better get in touch because Sherwin Williams might be, you know, making, you know, stealing your 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 profit potential here. I'm thinking an orange color one, like the shirt that I got on today. I got my Hawaiian shirt on. It's got an orange background. Yeah, yeah. Burnt, or, burnt orange. There you go. Burnt orange. Or, or maybe something with a, a rig that actually looks like a Hawaiian shirt. Yeah, there you go. Got, you know. <laughs> there you go. All right, all right. Hey, listen, I wanted to ask you about the origins of Giuliano Blue. There were all kinds of theories out there. I was the one who said that it was because of the original color of the CK722 transistor that you played with as an 11-year-old. This might have left an indelible mark on your radio psyche. But you said no, and and then I also I also kind of speculated that it might have been because um, Wes had some really blue rigs. If you take a look at Wes's shack, there's a lot of blue there too. And there was some other somebody else had been using blue. Well, what was that? Let me, let me tell you what uh, caught my eye with blue. A long, long time ago, in early 1963. Uh, Faust Gonset started a company called Sideband Engineers. Oh, yeah. SBE. And uh. the very first rig produced by him was called the SBE 33. And talk about a Widowmaker. It didn't have a power transformer in it. He took, it took the line voltage and voltage quadrupled it to get the, the plate voltage. So truly, he, truly a Faustian bargain. Yeah, there with yeah. Economy. But it was a gray case with blue knobs and it had blue lettering on it. And I said, that is that was so avant-garde for 1960s. I mean, everything was black or gray. 
I mean, anything that you bought, any commercial rig you bought was black or gray. Look at the Collins was was gray, and you know, the Hammerlin was black. You know, uh, um, the Helicrafters was uh, gray. So you, I looked at this and I said, wow. And I'm, I don't know where you got those blue knobs, but I mean, they were just absolutely amazing. I said, you know, someday I'm going to go to a blue color scheme, and I happened to be going through Home Depot, and there was a can of Oasis blue on sale, and I said. The radio gods have spoken, and that's how oh, man. It started. that's how it got started. There we go. We have the story. It's not because you had some cans of paint, you know, empty cans of paint no, in no. the shack. No, we blame it. It's it not blame it, but we attribute it to Faust Gonset. And and I tell you, Electric Radio Magazine has a whole series on Gonset, Faust Gonset, the family where it came from. You know, they 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 were the origin of Swan rigs too. They 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 eventually became Swan. He was he was deeply involved. I didn't know that. No, I didn't know that either. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull out these magazines and send them to you. And Gonset, you know, his name has two T's in it. Yes, but the ring and, only has but one. The ring only has one as a marketing thing. But anyway, yeah. very very cool. All right, so there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Faust Gonset is the the intellectual inspiration yeah. for Giuliano Blue. Yeah. We don't know where Giuliello came from, but yeah. uh, <laughs> except for one thing that he did do also. Uh, he had the Gonset Goonie boxes. You remember the Goonie boxes? These, these were a transceiver that was originally set up for like uh, two meters and six meters and made all surplus parts, crystal controlled, had a tunable receiver. But he also built a 10-meter version of that. And back in the early 50s, when our country was really at one edge, thinking about nuclear war, and there was a huge civil defense uh, aspect to it and as a matter of fact you used to have the Conrad receivers that you could hear the now we got to do it automatically with that Conrad receivers he made these Goonie boxes in yellow and they had a big civil defense sticker on it so he was painting all of those ones that went to the government were yellow so there's a all little, right. there's a little orange in there's there, the, there you go there you, all go. Right. there you go color schemes all right hey tell us about your defects okay I I have a new rig on the air and i'm pretty excited by it because it's a really a small size it's it's up on the blog and uh it's a 20 meter radio but uh it's got some t new technology in it i used a uh, new technology in the sense of something i used before but to, haven't used recently it's got a couple of uh mimic uh amplifiers in a bi-directional circuit nine megahertz if 20 meters it uses a black and white oled and the size is uh, four inches wide, two inches high, and six inches deep, five watts. Just works. And it's got a blue. <laughs> it's a blue case. It's key. A, key. A, a key. But it really works well. And um, I'm just having a lot of fun with it. Worked uh, worked a lot of DX with it. Um, can run 100 watts, 600 watts, or can run five watts. And so, you, you know, something that small size is just, if you were like, like to go out, camping or portable operation a rig that size much like the bidex you know you can you can take it with you and but this one happens to be on 20 meters which uh does some things for you relative to antenna size and uh what have you so i continue to use the uh lm373 having a lot of fun with that but i also uh tried something with the uh four pole additional filter and uh I, I actually installed that in a rig and uh, I, I ran some tests with it, and, and I just I, I found it looks good on paper, but doesn't work real well in a real rig. I, I'm finding that I, I can copy the, the opposite sideband, both on transmit and receive. It's not a really good filter. 
and and yet the plot, uh, the the uh, plot that would come out of the computer says it'll look like this, and the plot that I got looks like what this looks like, and and they kind of match. You can put them over the, each other, but it's not a really good filter. It's too wide, and uh, I it, you know it sounds like enhanced single sideband. So um, I, I just I would not do that again. I would not the dish all right. Not the dish all. I would no. not do that again. I would do something different. I mean, you 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 can do the AADE or you can use the process in uh, EMFRD, but the dish all it looks like the curve and <laughs> it sounds like crap. Yeah, I know. It's like this provoked all kinds of comments about dish appointment, dish dystopia. And yeah, I, I had a similar experience. I mean, I, I remember I tried to use the software one time, and it just didn't work out for me, and I ended up going back to yeah. the AADE software or the software that comes with EMRFD because what you're doing is you're taking the, for folks who haven't done it, you're taking the, the crystal parameters that you've measured by whatever means you get them, and then you plug them in and you tell the software, I want a filter that's you know 2.7 kcs wide. And then the software tells you, okay, put these capacitors to ground at these points, and the impedance will be such that so you've got to figure out the impedance yeah. matching network. You know, AADE will actually design the impedance matching network for you, Yeah. right? Yeah. Which is really right. helpful. And But, but I, I, I didn't have good luck with Dishal either. And so if anybody out there who can who could share with us a, a real a term from the lexicon, a tale of woe, yeah. or if anybody who's had success with this stuff, let well, I, I've gotten some emails, and uh, you know, someone says, "Oh, yeah, this thing works for well." Well, what I'm fearful of, people will plot, like I plotted it. I mean, I was amazed that my plot of the four pole really looked looked, looked looked exactly like what you should get with the Dishel, and I said, "This is real world data." And keep in mind, the Dishel plot that you get out of the computer was based on the measured parameters that I I put in there. Yeah. So I, I mean, it was reflecting. Real-world data. This is data that I input in there and says your plot will look like this based on what you're putting in there. And I got a plot similar to it. When I actually measured it, it sounded like crap. And it's too wide. And nominally, I, I set it for about 2.4 kilohertz. It's it's greater than 3. It's got to be greater than 3 if that other sideband is slipping through there. And and the I, I used close tolerance capacitors. I mean, there's only really two values, 120 and 150 peak of farad. And I spent a ton of money getting <laughs> precision 120 and 150, and it's just not worth the effort. I mean, I could have picked four crystals and put 68 picofarad in there, and I have just as good a filter, you know. And I'm just saying there's something wrong here with, with this. Now, I, I want to make a comment. Uh, you and I have had uh, a series of emails with a, a fellow down in Florida, Walt. And yeah. he's holding a crystal filter. And one of the things I discovered, I don't think he put you on, on the um, – email copy he had no matching transformers right that's what i figured because that, so, that'll that'll ripple you up man. so i mean when you look at his plot he says oh yeah i better put the matching transformers in there okay so you know you can't just build a filter and not pay attention to what the matching transformers no it's be. critical especially in terms and i mean of the you, you you can come close I, I said typically what you see these filters they're in 150 to 200 ohm range and i said so yeah. Put a four to one transformer in there, and you're 200 ohms to 50. And I said, yeah. then run your plot, and then you can maybe do it a three to one, you know, instead of a four to one, and then you can run another plot. I mean, if you can't 
calculated using one of the computer programs, one of the crystal programs, you can at least take a stab at it or even two to one, you know. You could even you could even do like an auto transformer on both yeah, sides. Yeah. Like one one coil but with taps that's, at various points. Yeah, what and I then do it symmetrically on either side and then just do it and yeah, check and see which yeah. one produces the less ripple. Yeah. And I mean, there's not, a lot of different ways of doing it. But. And I'm not so sure, too. Like, And I want to make mention of this because this is important. He looked at the BitX40 schematic. And so he says, well, I built it like the schematic. And he said, it, I built the filter and it, it sounds like crap. You need to keep in mind that each BitX40 kit that you're getting now is really a custom kit. That's right. Yeah, The, the crystal filter, Uma, <laughs> picks the crystals. And, and it's based on her sort. And, and as far as I know, the last time I looked, there were three different crystal frequencies. I mean, they, they managed to sort these to high, medium, and low. And this is what they use. So the values in there, you know, you put a BFO 12 megahertz, that's not right. It's got right. to be less than that because most of the f- crystal center frequencies are below 12 megahertz. So right. your BFO, either for your upper sideband or lower sideband, has got to be less than 12 megahertz. And, and I said, the other thing is, they may, based on what filter they put in there, they may be tuning the, the capacitor values. There may be a little tuning in there that says, by the way, if you're putting a low one in there, you need to do this. As a matter of fact, I saw this in, in the kit being offered by NRAD, and this is why I made the com- comment, the Model 351. I bought one kit here a while back, and I got a values for the capacitors. And then I bought a, a later kit, and they said, by the way, our crystal supplier has changed somewhat. These are You need to put these capacitors in, not what we told you before. They're custom to this kit. Mm. So so it's you just don't look at the schematic. I mean, the schematic is a schematic representation of what's in the BEDX-40. But what you have in the rig may not be exactly what's on the schematic because of what they picked for the crystal filter. Keep that in mind, guys. <laughs> Keep that right. in mind when you look at that. Yeah, you, yeah I, think what, I think what Farhan said is they, they, they had Uma sort them, and she would get, I think, well, how many crystals do they have in the filter? There's a three or four? four? Four. So they would pick out four for the filter, and then they would pick out a fifth one that was close. Close to the, 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 the four. And then because of the circuit parameters in the BFO, just by putting that crystal in there, Put it the, right on. the BFO would be in the magic spot. Right. You know, and, and I, I think that's really important for guys to understand. Also, the placement of that BFO frequency is super important. Guys have asked on uh, the BitX20 group about sideband inversion and when does it occur. Because sometimes guys will say, well, I'm just going to take the uh, the BFO and move it up above. You know, move it up above and then everything's going to be the same. But it's not because now you're going to have a sideband inversion. If you're, if you're taking the 7 megahertz signal with the modulation on it and subtracting it from the VFO sideband inversion. So that's something to consider. Hey, um, I really like your use of the LM373. Oh. That is really cool. <laughs> and and I, I, I it made me think about a, a chip that you sent me, the CA3020, that is used as the uh, the, the whole the whole pre-driver, the driver pre-driver section of the Epiphyte uh, transceiver. So I was thinking you could really go chips galore with a with oh, a sideband yeah. transceiver, and I'm sure I know you're you're there, but use the LM373, and then use a CA3020. You need one IRF510, 
and that's most of your uh, your transmitter, most of the transceiver right there, really. So, uh, I mean, this goes beyond my NE602 rig. I could throw a couple of NE602s in there one for the modulator and all that. Wow, exciting stuff. Yeah, and you know the thing is, the LM373 has got um, built-in AGC, and and you can even you can even make that adjustable. The uh, data sheets show you how to do that. In 1970s, they had a built-in AGC circuit in the single IC, and somehow that chip never caught on. <laughs> I mean, they they used it a little bit, but it never went anywhere. And and I'm kind of amazed that uh, it didn't get more more use or more notoriety. Just sort of disappeared off the face of the earth. You know, you mentioned AGC circuits with and with the BitX. One thing I'm noticing, it's strange. It's strange what what bothers people. Uh, what a lot of people, and I've heard many complaints about this. What they what drives some people nuts about the BitX is the kerchunk that they hear when they go from transmit to receive. Sometimes there's a loud pop. I mean, it doesn't bother me at all, but some guys really obsess about this, and they start coming up with really complicated circuits so that that doesn't happen. I don't really understand why it causes so much distress, but now I'm hearing about guys who are putting in AGC circuits specifically so that they can eliminate the kerchunk sound when you you know go from I don't know I I, I don't I don't get it every, to each his own yeah but it seems to me to be kind of kind of overkill there well it depends if you're using the BitX40 with headphones or a speaker well I never use it with headphones so if you're using yeah. one of the headphones you're gonna get hurt. you can that, that could yeah I know and, yeah but I, mean, I think any I, none of the receivers that I have that that yeah. lack AGC have Headphone. I don't use them with headphones, so I think that's probably one solution. The other thing you notice in the BitX40 world is there there seems to be a current of opinion out there that it's somehow dangerous to use your transceiver without an antenna tuner, right? Preferably one of these automatic antenna tuners. But I mean, when but when you're going with when you're using a rig as simple as the BitX40. To hook it up to an automatic antenna tuner, just it's a bad match, you know. It just doesn't, you know. It's like socks and sandals. It just doesn't really go, you know. It's simple. And here's the other thing: I would just try it, give it a try. You got a dipole out there, run the coax down, hook it up, hope for the best. If things go wrong and you blow the final, it's an IRF 510. 79 right? cents. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but there's there's this kind of oh, I'm afraid I'm going to blow up my rig. The whole purpose of the bidex is not to be afraid about blowing up the rig because it's 52 bucks so anyway I, i'm beginning to rant well i gotta well, stop there's, there's a more fundamental issue here bill people need to pay great attention to their antenna and you yeah. should start off first trying to get an antenna that's resonant uh, on the frequency you're going to operate on then that becomes a non-issue but guys throw a chunk of wire up in the attic this and say no, yeah no. No, this is and this you're you're absolutely right. And I I I I, I wasn't going to say anything, but but since you mentioned it, I think it's good advice for our our fellow radio amateurs who are into the bidx game. There, I, and I think that the attitude about the antenna comes from people's experience with consumer electronics. So often you'll get like an FM radio receiver, broadcast receiver, and they'll tell you you can hook up the antenna. But if you're living in the city, you don't even need the antenna. 
So people begin to think of the antenna as something sort of optional, not quite necessary, kind of a good-to-have thing. Whereas in ham radio, it's exactly the opposite. It's, it's, it's going to be the determining factor in success or failure. They have, um, you know, on Sunday nights, I think they have it on the West Coast too, but they on do. the frequency is 7277 back east, and it starts about 7 o'clock local. Guys get on with their BIDX40s. And I, I do think that people would have a lot better success if they had just a decent dipole up. Like you said, a resonant antenna. doesn't have to be up that high. But you hear guys coming up with all kinds of, well, I just got a wire and I got a counterpoise. A and rain I made gutter. This I hooked oh, it a no. plastic rain gutter. <laughs> no, no, no. So I, I, I agree with you. I think it's, it's don't look at the antenna as kind of a, a nice to have add on, but it's a key, a key element yep. of, the, of the station. Hey, uh, just a couple other things before we move on. You we were talking about crystal testers. And uh, I mentioned, I think the last time we were talking about this was that, you know, I, I kind of bailed on the, uh, on on building Tuck the W1FB, <laughs> man, that thing was that thing looked more complicated than most of my rigs. Yeah. So, uh, but but two guys wrote in saying that they built them. One was uh, G7WKE, and then Dino KL0S down there at the down there in Virginia. He both they both sent in pictures. I put them both up on the blog. Nice work, fellas. And I I, I kind of jokingly mentioned that they have a they might have a cottage industry business opportunity here. They could offer to do crystal testing. That would be actually, it's not a bad idea. If somebody has a good crystal tester and some guy out there wants somebody to take a look at the batch of crystals he has and tell him what the parameters are, that would be a useful service. So I was only half kidding about yeah, that. Yeah. I mean, because a lot of us have trouble, you know, getting an accurate read on what the, the emotional inductance and emotional capacitance, holder capacitance, Q, equivalent series resistance, all that kind of stuff. So Dino, G7WKE, you could split up the world market. You know, Dino, you take the Western Hemisphere. G7WKE takes Europe and points east. You guys will be challenging Bezos for, uh, you know, fame and, and, and prosperity. He started 10 years ago selling books out of his garage. Now he's yeah. the world's wealthiest guy. What, where's, it, what's the story? It only took him 10 years. There's hope, man. There's hope. Yeah. Hey, um, oh, we one other thing. Uh, I put up a, a, a link there. And this was kind of tongue-in-cheek aimed at you, Mr. SI5351 PLLDDS guy. Yes. The, the, K, the KPS Kang. Uh, I ceramic saw a problem VXOs. with that. I saw a problem with that. <laughs> I know. But I like KPS Kang. He's got great sites, great ideas. And uh, is definitely a member of the International Brotherhood of, uh, of, of Electronic Wizards. And he's got some interesting stuff on there. I got a link to it on, on the blog. Check I, it out. I have a problem with that. <laughs> VXOs, man. I love VXOs. Doug Dumas was always have making VXOs. Uh, VXOs are fine, but it's, I, he, here's my problem. He, he built a single crystal ceramic resonator, single ceramic resonator uh, oscillator, and on on 80 meters, and he moves at 80 kilohertz. And I, I just have never seen anything like that in my experience to be able to move that much in a VXO. And, and be successful. In a higher frequencies, you certainly can move them a lot more, but lower frequencies is, is kind of problematic. You just you, you just can't get in there and tinker with was the it. But was he using a crystal or was he using a ceramic resonator? Well, you said ceramic. I didn't go back and look at it. If it, if it was a, even a ceramic, that that's a huge that's a huge frequency excursion on, on 75 meters. I mean, the best I've seen is a couple kilohertz with a crystal. 
couple kilometers. Yeah, I know, but, but the ceramics move quite a bit. They're, uh, they're, they're, it, they're a it, lot more wiggly. Okay, and he gets 160 at 7 megahertz. That, that's yeah. a huge frequency excursion, huge yeah. for a VXO. Now, not using like a super VXO. Uh, now I've done I've done huge frequency excursions, not that much, maybe 40, 50 kilohertz at 7 megahertz using three or four crystals. That I that I've successfully done, but I mean 160, and I, and one of the cautions you always hear about this is, is it really a VXO or is it like pull the crystal and if it's still oscillating, you may have a VFO there that's just centered on the on the crystal frequency. So yeah. it, it may in fact be right. I have not replicated his test, but I want to believe. I want to believe, Pete. Because that would be another alternative to those mysterious little digital black boxes that you love so much. Yeah, I do. <laughs> uh, I do too. I, I got. I got. I got. But I, I like VXO too. I got a VXO in the in the bid X seventeen. Hey, hey, by the way, speaking of digital black boxes, our friend Dean AC9JQ sent us a picture. He's working on a dual conversion transceiver. Did you happen to look at his display? I don't think I, I think I might have, but I, I don't okay, remember. He, he's got something that's really got my interest. On on this, on the display that he's using, he's got like buttons that say upper sideband, lower sideband, AMCW. And depending upon what you turn on, on the code, the button lights up on the display. So like, you know, if you selected USB, it lights up, but, but the others are kind of darkened out, grayed out. But when you turn it on, turn on the various modes, they come on. Now he's figured out how to do that. That that's got my interest. <laughs> you got you you got to have that. I can tell. You got to have that. Yeah, that's gonna that's gonna, that's gonna count as several weeks of, of hair pulling for you to get that thing going. Yeah. yeah. He, he's got it. Now can you it's imagine? Good. Can it'll you keep. Imagine? It'll. This is good. This this will keep you out of the art stores. No. I'm keep the you yellow, out of trouble. <laughs> yellow front panel. With, with the black, with the white showing up. Oh, man. I, I, got two, I, I got two words for you, Pete. Mail order. Mail order. Don't go to the store with your beret on. You're getting in trouble over there. Listen. All right. Um, let's see. I'm going to hold this thing up here just to show you, man. Brace yourself. Look at that thing. Look at Ooh, that thing. I know what it is. A Baofeng. I have a Baofeng HT. He's got one, too. I'm going to give you a call on 440. <laughs> I don't think it's going to work. We can do it on hey, the Wind Network, by the way. <laughs> we, we don't have Wind Network back here. You don't? Because that's a California thing. Yeah. Yeah. I checked it out. Yeah, we got it's the Wind California Network. thing. You guys, you guys are very advanced out there in La La Land, but uh, we don't have it. Um, but anyway, I, my, Billy walked into the shack not long ago with a box of stuff. He was cleaning out his room, and he said, I got this thing. Is this? What, could you use this? And I looked at it, and I said, wow, that's one of those little Balfang transceivers. He picked it up because he was talking to one of his friends when they were lifeguards. <laughs> And using it sort of Did as a family radio thing. Did you ever think that NTCQR would, would be had a bale thing in his hand? We need Look at to that. take a picture of that. And I, I, I actually made a contact on it on 440, which is the highest frequency I have ever used, yeah. by the way. But it's sitting here. It's I don't know. It's kind of cute. It could be useful for something. Maybe I'll hook it up to an antenna and listen for satellites. Uh, there's not much happening in terms of VHF, UHF activity around here. Not much... Uh, on the air, so uh, I don't know, but we have it there. If anybody has any suggestions, let me know. You know what that's got? That's really nice. It's got a standard FM radio in it. Uh, that's true. That's true. Yeah, I wish it had like the aircraft band. It doesn't have that though. I like to listen to the airplanes around here, but no, 
But uh, yeah, this four, 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 seven, thirty-two, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> 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 All right. Yeah, you're right. It's kind of disappointing. Hey, uh, speaking of commercial radios, I, I had to do a repair to my Sony SW7600GR shortwave receiver. I dropped it, and it landed directly on the uh, the pot control that is like the, the fine-tuned for SSB. The whole reason, I, at least it got me this for Father's Day a while back, and the whole purpose of getting it is because it has a BFO so you can listen to SSB signals. It's a nice little receiver. It's a little portable receiver. But it fell and it landed directly and it shattered this pot and, you know, anyway. So I started thinking, I couldn't find a schematic. I, 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 but then I figured it's probably just a varactor diode. It's probably just changing the frequency of the BFO. So I went in there and I started out with 10K and that kind of worked. I just put a 10K pot coming to the outside. I got pictures of it up on the blog. Armand wrote in and said, no, no, it's 50K. Armand knew he had a schematic and he checked it out. It was a 50K pot. So I replaced it with a little 50K trimmer. It works great. I'm going to order, I think, one of the actual thumb kind of capacitors and go in there and fix it. But it was a very satisfying repair to get this thing going. And uh, thanks to a number of guys who wrote in with, with suggestions on how to get the part to actually fix it properly. So that was pretty cool. Pete, we're at one hour and ten minutes. So we got to go. got to open up the mailbag here. We're opening up. All right, um, Steve Silverman, not only did he, he get me this uh, wonderful signal generator, but he alerted us to a uh, kind of a rebirth of Radio Row in New York City. Um, that one of the, Somebody went down there and bought out a Radio Row store. It had moved to Brooklyn, and he bought it, and, he, and the guy moved it. It's now out in the Bronx. So there's a Radio Row store out in the Bronx, and I've got the links up on the, uh, on the, on the blog. Check it out. Uh, Radio Row lives in, in the Bronx. Thanks is for, it for a, that, is Steve. Is it a museum or a store? It's a store. He's only open. The hours are limited. The The guy who runs it is um, <clears throat> seems a bit eccentric, but who are we to talk? I mean, we're radio amateurs, right? So uh, he, he's got a real interest in this stuff, and, uh, and I mean, it's an eccentric thing to do. Uh, move Radio Row to the Bronx, but uh, he's got an online store, and he's got the store open at in certain hours. You can go and check it out. I, I think it's real interesting, so I wish him a lot of luck. Um, Tony, G4, WIF, Tony Fishpool, on the cover of Sprat Magazine. Yes. It's like that old song, on the cover of the Rolling Stone. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Hey, hey, let me just... Shel Silverman, I think, wrote that song. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. Let me just give you a comment about Tony. He sent me an email, and when I uh, my latest blog post on post on the dishing the the or dissing the dishel or ditching the yeah. dishel, and he sent me a parallel story about um, he he got some of these at mega chips, and he was going to do some some programming, and he went through kind of the same thing. You know, this is what you do, and he said. You, you do all that, and he says, you know, you know enough to do the right things, and, and what you end up with at the end is it doesn't work. And he says, you know, you get all these conflicting inputs. Oh, you're supposed to do this. You're supposed to do that. And I appreciated that, him setting that on to me, but, but I think it's kind of uh, important that we, as amateurs, take a look at stuff that we see. But also don't let our don't let our ourselves be fooled by things that just seem too good to be true. <laughs> okay, that's right. You you need to have data, and when you look at data, uh, data doesn't lie. 
And and so you need to be reasonable about this. You need to get smart on the subject. You need to do research. I mean, he was doing all the things he said. By the time he got done, he had a small fortune. <laughs> you know, someone says, well, you need to get one of these to make this work. So he got one of those. Then you need to get this book. <laughs> so he's got this book. And he said he started adding everything up, and it was a sizable amount of money. And he said it, at the end, the end result was it didn't work. So just, mm-hmm. you know, look at things, uh, caveat emptor. And crunch the numbers, like you say. With, yeah. with filters, even if you don't have, like, a sophisticated sweep generator or anything like that, still things you, you can, can do. just – you can just you can get little eighty ninety eight fifty yeah and then start just you could do it by hand with a you know with a, just a notebook and just move move through the passband you could d- jump it like every about a hundred kilohertz steps and then record the output see what's going through the filter and you might find as you did that it's letting through the other the other sideband that yeah. it's too broad yeah. and so it gives you a clear picture too once you do this it's really good too because it helps you place the BFO. If you know exactly what the passband looks like with the filter in the rig, that's what it is, then then you can go and you can, in a much more informed way, place the BFO or the carrier oscillator reference to the crystal filter passband, which is really important. What, what What's at the heart of what you said is the relative issue. You know, if you make changes, what's the relative change that you're seeing through this? And you can plot that relative change. It doesn't have to be the exact frequency, but I'm saying when I put the frequency down here, I'm getting this amount of output. When I put it up here, I get this. And you can make that plot. So right. whatever device will give you a relative view of, of the performance of that filter, that's what's important. Right. What I would do is I would just use the I would use the the, the voltmeter feature on the Rigol scope. There you go. And I would record it. Now, when you're going to plot it, it's important that you convert it to log. You need a log scale yeah. on there, or else you'll get all kinds of crazy right. looking graphs. Right. But if you do it in log and you put the readout in dB, you can clearly see you know where the passband is. You could tell if you have too much ripple. You could tell what the skirts look like. And and it, it, all of this really helps you with that critical placement of the BFO and the carrier right. oscillator. Right. All right. Let's see. What else we got here in the mailbag? Oh, Armand, did we mention him before? Again, <coughs> WA1UQO has informed me that the Berryville Ham Fest is coming up. I think it might be next weekend. I, I don't know. It's a little bit far out. Uh, we'll have to see what the weather's looking like. I hope to see you out there, Armand. Hey, I saw in the in electric radio uh, pictures of a, a, of a ham interested in boat anchor radios with a call sign very similar to Armand's. Armand is WA1UQO. This guy was WA1UQM. Wow. They appeared to be of similar vintage. Wow. So I'm trying to figure out whether their their paths may have crossed in the uh, Boston FCC office. You know what I love? There, there's, some, there's some wicked guys in the FCC. I have known of a couple of uh, husband-wife teams that are hams, and it seems like the wife always gets the earlier call sign. <laughs> you know, they, like M and O, you know, like the wife would get M and the husband would get O, and she'd say, my call is this should be for yours. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> wicked guys, wicked guys. Hello, that's bad, hello. that's bad. Yeah, that shouldn't be. That's, 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 there's something not quite right about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I got a real nice email from Thomas. Uh, KK6AHT, also known as F4HDQ, 
he built the Minimai. Yeah. And he crossed paths, I think, with your son at some point, yeah, right? Yeah, my son saw his transceiver up there at the, the uh, and he, my son also has picture, pictures of Masabo Banzi at the, uh, at the same yeah. convention, yeah. Well, it was good to hear from Thomas. He and I uh, took the Minima into a bar in Roslyn, Virginia several years ago. Glad to hear Is from he you, Thomas. Thanks for on the air. I think he has. I got to check. He sent me an email. I'm not sure what the results were. I, I remember seeing it and had the amplifier. Oh, board yeah, on there yeah. Too. The picture when when it was displayed at that convention had every everything all built in it because you could see that. So, Thomas, let us know. And then finally, a really happy on the air QSO for me. The other day, I got home like two three days ago, and I got on forty. Conditions were pretty bad, and I started calling CQ. I called CQ several times. I was just about to throw the switch, and I hear N2CQR. This is W8NSA. Ooh. Yeah. This is our old friend Jim. His old call sign was AL7RV. Yeah, and Jim, over the year, we've been in touch for a long time, collaborated on many projects. He sent me a whole bunch of stuff over the years. His parts are in all my rigs around The relay. The relay you replaced. The relays. Oh, there's so much other stuff, all kinds of other good stuff. And it was just so cool to run into him unplanned on, on 40. We had a nice, nice QSO, but it, it made my day. So thanks for that, that QSO, Jim. It was good to run into you. Pete, as they say on, on the car talk, we have squandered another perfectly good hour. Hour and 19 minutes. <laughs> hour and, that's right. Hey, I had a lot of fun. Yeah, you bet. What, what, what's on the horizon for you? Got any tr- summer travel plans for August coming up? No, anything? no, we're we're kind of uh, we're kind of good there, but uh, we may make a trip up to the uh, Bay Area in the fall. And what uh, what we uh, do in the Bay Area is go visit my son, but he knows where all the surplus places are. So, but he's traveling right now. He's going to Singapore here in uh, about a week or two. And so he'll be gone for maybe three weeks and then be coming back. So uh, sometime in the fall, it's a little cooler. So I'm already getting my list. My list. That's it. My, my list. Got to hit, hit the old, all the old, the old, yeah. the old haunts, yeah. all the places. Oh yeah, and he 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 knows where they're at because he's always going in there looking for stuff for for things that he does in his shop. But I mean, he doesn't. It's not electronic, but mechanical. So a lot of the surplus faces have the electromechanical devices, and they also have the electronics. So we're we're getting all spooled up for that. Excellent. Have a great trip. You bet. 7-3 from Northern Virginia. Thanks a lot, Pete. Yeah, 7-3 from the left coast. See you, Bill. Ooh, that's awesome. The Solder Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. 
Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at cafepress.com. If you have a small business, consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well, we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi!